0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, we continue our special eight-episode miniseries on Netflix's Hip Hop Evolution documentary. Nate is joined by Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson, his cohorts from the YouTube show, If the Shoes Fit. This week, they discuss Season 2, Episode 3 of Hip Hop Evolution, Do the Knowledge, which returns to New York to cover the Bridge Wars and Native Tongues groups like De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and joined once again by my amigos, Alexi Old, and Eugene S. Robinson, who doesn't care to be called my amigo. I can tell by his <laughs> expression.
2: <laughs> now, we're back. Continue hey, did you discussion. Get teased? Did you get teased a lot with that last name growing up? Wilcox? <laughs> I, I, I'm not letting you derail the show. You <laughs> have a story I'll tell later on the other show
1: um, that I shouldn't tell. That's absolutely foolishness but we are back talking about hip-hop evolution this is the first part of our discussion of season two episode three do the knowledge in which we return to the big apple after some side trips to texas and the san francisco bay area and so do the knowledge first focuses on the latin quarter then we get into KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions, then we get into the whole Native Tongues movement, and wrap up with tribe called Quest. In this first half, we're going to talk about uh, the Latin Quarter and KRS-One and BDP. So first up, the chronological jumping, I mean, and regional jumping, it's like for the next six episodes, we're going to be back in New York. So the center of gravity is returning, and these trips to Texas and the West Coast seem And and the whole South, not just Texas, but uh, seems sort of like sidelines. And 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 chronologically, we're jumping back in time, so we're back in the mid '80s. Did you guys lose me?
2: No, I can hear you. Yeah, but you know the problem is, and I was mindful of this watching the whole episode. The problem is that people have forgotten that New York was like—it's a a city of 12 million um, people. So if with WBLS and Mister Magic and some of these radio stations, you could have. A hit in New York, a moderate hit in New York and be rich, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, you you, you know, and it didn't matter. I mean, so in other words, you know, Nate's in Texas by 85. I'm healthily ensconced in California. I don't know. I don't know where Alexi is, but you know, uh, yeah, DC uh, New Yorkers. And as a New Yorker, I can say this. You know, with 12 million people, you tend to think like, like I used to call the rest of America loser states. I go outside of California, you could blow it all up, and what would you miss? Uh, this is me in 1979. Now that I've traveled maybe single state, but Alaska, well, it's just a beautiful country. But so I'm just try, I'm trying to frame it with we are bouncing back it seems like a diversion but you gotta understand for the people who never left new york that was the only game in town they weren't listening to this stuff coming from new orleans or florida in california we were but not in new york in dc
3: we weren't listening to anything but new york i mean that's why one thing that they had for mc hammer that they really missed out on was turn this mother out was all about that the fact that he's selling out all over the country but he's not hitting into New York and they would refuse to play him yep. they would yep. not and I guess we'll find out then you know the, the, the you know in the next episode, you know they would not play non York – and nationwide I, I don't know what you were hearing in Texas Nate, but like in DC, we weren't aware and didn't care. I mean, it's just pretty much like, you know, that's where every everything, you just assumed it was coming from New York. That's where the top stuff was coming from. So you weren't thinking about like, wait a second, why aren't they playing? They'd have some people like DC Scorpio try to do something local, but it seems small potatoes even in DC. Yep. It's like, no, it's yeah, yeah. New York.
2: Yeah, you don't go to Paducah for champagne, right? Well, so.
1: And And that also, <laughs> I think, points to some of why the Juice Crew was seen in New York, as so big, because MC Shannon was hitting it big in yeah. New York, but yep. not nationally. Yep. And so, like, when we were sort of baffled as to the emphasis they put on Marley Marl in the previous episode, which, you know, having done more research, kind of embarrassed by it personally, because Marley Marl was a big deal. And and I slept on it. I mean, I didn't. I'd never put together the guy's CV and all the different things he had done, and I only knew him as the loser in this feud with Karis One that we're going to be talking about. Uh... But first, we're going to talk about the Latin Quarter, which is, to my knowledge, the only club that they zero in on for the you know whole segment title in in this series. And there were clubs. You know there were clubs in the Bronx that were a big. Well, no, no, they, they mentioned they,
2: they mentioned some of the other ones. They mentioned. But well, they didn't so, give it the big. Treatment right, treatment, right, right, right. They didn't give the, the Mud Club the big treatment, but the downtown scene they did kind of reference, right? Yeah. It didn't get its own cartoon, is Nate? Yeah, yeah correct, it, to say. Cartoon. It cartoon. slick Rick didn't. Slick Rick did it mention in this song. Went to the Latin Quarter and I got in free. <laughs> <laughs> slick Rick
1: makes some cameos. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and the first thing they emphasize is. What Times Square was like in the 80s, yes. which to anybody who's seen Times Square for the last 20 years, it's unfathomable because yep. you know Giuliani yep. sanitized it, made it this tourist haven. But in the 80s, it's not quite Taxi Driver anymore, but it's pretty. It's close. It's pretty close,
2: man. By 84, it was still pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, the I red light yeah. all the way. Yeah. And
1: and and gangster kids, um, and they talk about the violence that went on inside the club. And you know some of the celebrities that I talked to sort of talk about having kind of a hall pass that people would give them the heads up, hey, get you and your crew off the floor because we're about to jack the place.
2: Well, I accept you know, what Slick Rick sings about. You know, he says, I went to that corner, I got it free. All the girls are crazy for my trunk jewelry. And then some Brooklyn kids were looking hard at his throat. And he do lays out getting robbed by guys from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> sure, that, that's what Brooklyn specialized in, so. Yeah. So
3: 87 sick up kids, like for uh, MOP, mash out posse. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: So, what did you guys think of the Latin Quarter segment?
3: You know, it's sometimes you watch stuff. I was talking tomorrow about this last night. Sometimes you watch things and you think about, ah, oh, man, would have been nice to be there or whatever. Not for that shit. <laughs> I had no, I was not like, oh, back in the day, I would have. No, not back in the day there'll be no days I'll be hanging out the lab in the and quarter.
2: Well, th- there are a couple of things that they, they didn't really go into, which you need to factor into, first of all. You know, so eighty four, eighty five, um you know, there was some kind of cross pollination that later gave birth to to bands like Onyx so Mm. the whole and you know fab fight freddy was there so at this point now pogoing had given had given away punk rock and pogoing had given away to hardcore which is a tougher scene and these people were exposed rick rubin was going back and forth the beastie boys were going back and forth there were a lot of a lot of hip-hop cats who were going back and forth as well so the zeitgeist was completely different and they don't talk about the drugs they kind of Mm. you, you know there was a kind of gentle wink when they said this was the this was a Studio 54 for black folks. But you keep in mind that, that, that what was, the drug that was running things at that time in 84, based on my memory, was cocaine. right? Not crack, which came, came later, but, but uh, uh, cocaine. And, and the action on the floor and in the club seems to be coke. If you know cocaine, it seems to be coke fueled. Like, how else would you bring a samurai sword to the club? Why would you think that was a good idea? only somebody on coke does something like that seriously nobody smoking weed is doing that you know
3: D- so. did new york ever have the love boat or texas have love boat hit as a drug love boats
1: no, what's love but
3: they would smoke embalming fluid it was a oh, team yeah. C. Oh, oh yeah oh yeah. yeah i heard about that yeah we
0: called
4: that yeah. <laughs> like what the yeah. f- it
3: happened really cl- it was a really hot moment where like sink the love boat and then I remember this big stoner uh, passed away Jason Dio he didn't even survive to get 20 he was like he was all he's like man you don't smoke love boat do you that just crazy. <laughs> That's like a bombing
2: fluid, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, Jason Dio is not soaking yeah, like, love. Cro- I like, like Crocodile. But then I remember 84, I went back for like a New Year's Eve, uh, to hang out with my friend who's now a documentary filmmaker. This guy, Richard Burge and going through, going, I said, I wonder what's going by Studio 54. And I kind of went by the old Studio 54. I don't think it had closed yet. It was a shell of its former self, but, uh, people were uh, a guy was sitting on the sidewalks he'd been stabbed and a you know a group of kids ran off and um and i was like well i'm gonna offer help for the guy but you know what black and puerto rican teens probably all look alike to this guy Mm. so i'm like screw it i'm leaving i'm gonna take the ind train so i'm walking down and i swear to god i saw one of these guys Later in line to get to the Latin Quarter, so you know it was. So, did just you like, go to the Latin Quarter back in the day? Nah, by '84, '85, I was at this point. These were I was playing shows in the Pacific Northwest with the the last incarnate, uh, uh, the third in or fourth incarnation of Whipping Boy, uh, Nirvana was opening up for us, which I just found out the other day because of some <laughs> eagle eye who make a, who read Michael Azrad's book as a skid row. So I was I was not I was not thinking New York hip hop at that point at all. But they, you know but I mean I knew about the Latin Quarter. Um, it, it looked to me you know what I, I used to base things at that time since I was spending all my time getting beat beaten up by bouncers by what the bouncers look like. And so I remember walking to the train that you know, New Year's Eve after that guy got stabbed and looking at the bar. I'm like ah, I'm not going in there. I don't want to go to a club where bouncers can beat you where clearly are able to beat me up. <laughs> mm. So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so the bouncers were serious
2: yeah, yeah they were serious guys yeah, yeah muscle yeah. muscle muscle bound Puerto Rican cats are just like nah, nah nah nah
1: and so the the key quote I want to pull about the Latin quarters from Dante Ross legendary A&R man from Tommy Boy Records I first heard of him when he was name checked on De La Silla's uh, yep. Dante is a scrub on De La Silla's uh, debut <laughs> album but he says uh, he's talking about uh, DJ Red Alert there at the club. and He says, you knew that what he played on Friday night at work was getting played Saturday night on the radio. So it was a direct line from what worked at the dance floor to what was going on the air. You went in there and you know knew what records were real. And if your record didn't get played, your record was probably bullshit. That was the pulse of new music in New York City, undoubtedly. The greatest breeding talent, breeding ground for talent of all time. Obviously, that's... Uh, hyperbole. Uh, it was responsible largely for the greatest change in the guard in hip hop history. Again, probably a little hyperbole, but it sets up the KRS-One thing. And and they spend basically the first half of this episode talking about KRS-One and BDP and center it on the feud and the disc records uh, with with the Juice Crew and Magic. And then they get into uh, Karis one. So, so they, they segue there and they set that up nicely. And clearly I think that they picked the Latin quarter to focus on to that extent Mm -hmm. so they could dive into that feud and, and explain how it was that nobody's from nowhere could knock off the, the Kings of the scene at the time. And it was basically like, if you could get a record together and get it to the DJ and he played it and you went over with the crowd,
2: uh, big here in it. it yeah and that was a complete knockoff i mean that was not like that was like kind of sort of what 50 did to later to ja rule that was complete and total devastation i mean kumo d ended the feud with, with j yeah he came out okay you know but these guys i mean you talk to that average 25 year old hip-hop head and say mc shan huh
3: yep yeah, they had a Sprite yeah. commercial. I remember uh, decades ago they had they tried to say, "Oh, Sprite, like showing respect to old school hip hop, and we're gonna resuscitate the feud between MC Shan and KRS-One." And even at that point, it was just like, I mean, I was glad that Shan was going to payday, but yeah. it just his career just went in such a totally different trajectory. Well, you know
1: what happened to Shan though? Uh, I, I, in my research, I came across this. Remember Seal? Yes. MC Shan. Found him and made him and made bank off that cat. Oh, oh, so
2: no need to feel sorry. So,
1: that, huh? am I? Not, wait, I might be getting it mixed up. It might have been a white rapper from Canada, but anyway, it was. Oh, snow no, no,
3: snow, snow, snow. Oh, no, that's right, he did. Snow. He, did. he did. He did. He did. You're right. And yeah. farm yeah, yeah. oh, my yeah, my yeah. yeah, out. Yeah, that's
1: right. Okay. He did that one. Yep. And Marley Marl came out okay too because he figured out that he was making less money as an in house producer for the. Um, cold Chillin' Records, then he would make as an independent. Mm-hmm. So when he did LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out album, The Big Comeback, he banked on that. And and yeah. that's an all time classic. And I do think that's one of the things that the series really underplays LL Cool J. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but, it's because he's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's because he's, he's lit. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I mean, there's reasons. I can understand why. Yeah, yeah, but if, because yeah, yeah. if you're going to focus on LL Cool J, you kind of have to. Focus less on Randy DMC and even like KRS 1. I mean, you know, he strides that a whole era. And- but
2: I have to say, what's really weird is that, like, I think KRS 1, the, the, they told the best part of the story because it's like, you know, the homeless shelter, right. which we knew, the Scott Rock involvement, The you know, it's like that. Stop the, the violence. The hero's, pro- the hero's progression. But by the time they got to stop the violence, as far as I was concerned, he was dead. You know, it was like after school special time. And I've always hated that didactic stuff. Like do this, don't do that. And we'll get to that. But first let's, let's summarize the story. (laughs)
1: uh, (laughs) Eugene in the timeline. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, but yeah, so they they tell the story really well. And Karis ones a really attractive figure because he's a kid in a homeless shelter who's social worker of all people turns out to be the DJ, you know, who Mm. makes his, his, his break. And then his confrontational nature is what you know forges that well of well Scott he was he, he
2: he was forced. It was when the guy said this record sucks and like, you know, yeah. he was forced.
1: But but even the way he tells the story of the first time he performed with Scott LaRock, it mm. was accidental. He was just there to be the guest and some crew comes up dissing Scott LaRocque and they're like, You're lucky you don't have an MC here and krs one can't resist and, and goes in and, and you know and does the whole riff on you know, if you're competing with a guy who, you know, you look like you had breakfast this morning. That's right. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have, I was sleeping on the two train last night. Uh, you that know? Was great. And, so, and the
2: two train was not the train to sleep on. Man. Yeah.
1: So that's like Eugene said, that capturing that hunger and up from nowhere uh, of KRS one. And also the diss, you know, and and one's pretty open about it now that like we were yokels, we didn't have an appointment to meet with, you know, Mr. Yep. Magic, the biggest DJ in the city he's recording with marley Marl, and we just burst in like clowns and and he went off on us and you know the assumptions for me probably didn't even listen to his stuff um and that's what sets up the feud another thing that i wanted to point out though that i thought was really clever about the first uh song the the bronx that they did south Bronx, do bridge yeah south bronx was by making it an ode to their hood they immediately guaranteed they would have a positive response in the club because they knew that the Bronx was represented there. So it wasn't like they just went after the bridge and, and the juice crew. They were repping South Bronx and awesome. this
2: is a- also, back to the 12 million, you know how many people lived in the Bronx then? You know, it was one of the bigger boroughs, man, a lot of people. So you, you had to hit in the Bronx, you didn't need to go anywhere else, really. When I was in yeah. uh, New
3: York in 90, uh, moved there in 95, like people would still be breaking out like in the middle of nowhere, all different kinds of clubs all over the city, South Bronx, South, South Bronx, like just out of nowhere, like, you know, almost like as a joke kind of thing. You know? yeah,
2: yeah
1: yeah and and um anyway the, so they they do a good job of telling that whole thing do you guys have any other insights on the on the whole dispute with yeah, I, you know, know, I just, just to, I, the
3: thing i think is just again is the selective nature of the show and who they pick and who they don't pick because you know eugene when you mentioned um Kumo D, I was thinking about Kumo D and Busy Bee, like that's that's yeah, the classic, yeah. you know, battle story and someone coming out of nowhere just attacking and destroying somebody's career that had yeah. traditionally people had started out with. But the LL thing also, I mean, they had LL a lot of photographs, right? So I I don't know if that's a wink wink to the fact like oh we didn't forget this yeah, guy, yeah. but it was yeah, just yeah. it was strange.
1: Yeah, and they got Slick Rick into a bunch of photographs in this episode. The Latin I like Quarter it. kind of serves another function in that they can show all these celebrities there and all these other people. And also, I got the feeling that a lot of the Juice Crew people that are on this show probably were assuming they were going to be featured more centrally. Uh, like, didn't, you know, like Roxanne Shante, when, when she's talking, you're not getting the Roxanne, bitches, Roxanne. She's, uh, that she's setting herself up as, I'm the heel in this tale, you know? i mean she like had a great so
3: story that's the thing and again i don't know if it's one of these things yeah. where it's been told so many times before but she has a great story with how she got on the scene how she was able to sue the record label and get them to pay for her eternal education and turn it into a mm, phd yeah. a, a medical degree i mean it's crazy
1: yeah and they and don't go into any of that stuff at all um and so then Canadians. they talk about the first two singles bdp put out in that period which were not their first singles like they had yep. some flop yep. singles before that but they brilliantly did this and and the bridge is over it is just absolutely killer record and then they talk about criminal minded minded coming out how big everything's blowing yep. up and then they get into the tragedy of scotland rock but to me the thing that they left out was how hardcore criminal minded was Mm. and that how sharp like eugene mentioned about the the transition to the knowledge era of krs one and it's totally understandable if your partner gets murdered in some ridiculous situation playing with street violence in your music is going to be less appealing and you're going to want to try to you know it's it's a totally logical transformation but and i don't think that criminal minded compared to the hardcore rap albums that came out after. I don't think they were asking for trouble or anything. I mean, you know, but songs like Nine Millimeter are totally violent. But
3: isn't there also ongoing debate? At least I've seen this online in terms of when you're talking about like the birth of gangster rap, you know, like you do have um, Schoolie D, the people talk of Schoolie D but they talk about yeah. criminal minded, predating NWA stuff. So, you know, there's or, yeah. or, or six in the morning, like I think this whole thing like was it criminal minded or six in the morning? Like what? what, which one, you know, so I think you're right. Like when you talk about an album that is instrumental in gangster rap and hardcore, you know, uh, uh, street lyrics. And you just like gloss over because again I also don't know again I I'm always making the assumption too it's reflecting what the tastes are of the producers and you know so you know they like the KRS one the consciousness and all this kind of stuff and certain kinds of, of of lyrical flows and and symbolism so I think they gravitate towards that as opposed to. The and they already sides. covered
1: the gangster thing, and they and they chose with schooly Ice T and WA was right. The, no, but
3: that's what I'm saying. But they uh, totally ignored yeah. BDP's role in that. And so yeah, I thought yeah. they'd come I tell, back. I, and I, tell, it up.
2: I tell you, the the, the numbers of like uh, the friends I've had, I know at least two or three that have gotten killed doing what, breaking up fights. Mm-hmm. That's why I see people fighting on the street. I'm like, well, as long as it doesn't violate my sense of fair play. You're on your own. <laughs> you know, if it's yeah. 20. And then, of course, when last time I saw a fight where it was four guys against one guy, I interceded and was hospitalized.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, mind your own business is, is often yeah. good advice. Yeah. And, Myob. And, you know,
2: yeah, but, it's, but a, it's a key. It's a key to good dental care. And and, and
1: <laughs> I, I was glad that they did focus on ks one in this yeah. though because Criminal Minder was an album I was always looking for and could never find. Mm, yeah. And then I was disappointed with um, the second album, the post-Scott La Rock album, yep. Yep. which listening to it, it was better than I remembered it being when I went back and listened to it. But Criminal Minded smokes it. And it's clear that Scott LaRock was adding quite a bit. And the other thing they didn't talk about in this... That really jumps out is the reggae influence yes. on 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 BDP early on and the beats and his rhyming style.
2: Yep, and that yep, was one yep. of the
1: most interesting and cool things. And I don't really go into that at
2: well, all. Well he did. He did when he talked about you know, he talked about look, I grew up in the building where Herc was. I was peering through the window when he was doing this stuff. So that was But he didn't
3: specifically catch. call out Jamaica.
2: That's ah, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that. Alex. And once
3: that.
1: again, yeah, and, and so and then you know the story segues into the death of Scott rock and and the response with the stop the violence movement and the, and the, the song self-destruction which i agree with you that karis one went too preachy you know but i do think that that self-destruction and stop the violence were important and credible works you know that this was an important thing to say and it obviously didn't stop the crack wars or stop the violence, but but hey, it, look in my like, high school when
3: a guy got robbed. After he got robbed, he said, "Ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal one another." <laughs> so, stop the violence helped him bridge the gap.
1: Yeah, and it does. I think, especially for the purposes of the show, set up the Native tongues movement. Yes, yes, that, really, uh, that,
2: really nicely, really nicely.
1: Yeah, and 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 that that I thought. Was was well done, and then they they get into the whole, you know, they got a quote from Paradise uh, Gray, the the major domo at the Latin Quarter. Mm. You know, we started giving rappers Zulu beads and Africa medallions. We was like shaming people that still yep. wore jewelry, yeah. and you yeah, know, and course. they even got LL Cool J and Run DMC to take the jewelry off. So mm-hmm. it it does establish how that stop the violence movement laid the groundwork for native tongues, and they do mention that little era. Of X Clan Black Watch movement, poor righteous teachers, brand Nubians that was trying to do knowledge-based stuff, but just didn't click the way that the Native tongues guys did. You it know, didn't, like, didn't, it,
2: did, it, did, it yeah. didn't groove, man. It didn't groove. It was too much talking and not enough dancing. No, I, I th- sorry, well,
3: I, yeah, I think it it did not hit mainstream as much, but you know, I know when um when I was at Howard, like. You know, brand newbie and was all over the place. So, you know, I think that it it yeah, had more yeah, of a Howard localized what? Howard, what? Howard University. Howard University. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know. You didn't feel College guilty for. about listening to Grand Pooh yeah. coming straight from the Boogaloo.
1: Yeah. yeah. And Poor Roger's teachers was one that like must have had a good marketing team or with their record label because that was one of those. I remember seeing them in magazines and getting some copy or something. And and like you know, uh, it just didn't it didn't click. Brand new beans clicked a little bit, but you know, compared to what's coming next with De La Soul and and the Jungle Brothers and all that, it did not. It did.
2: Who I saw live like in '85 or '86. The did Jungle I, Brothers? No, De La, De 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 La Soul. Was good, or or them, they weren't that good, were they? They were terrible. I've lives,
3: seen De La Soul man. two times, and just bad, and just they yeah. just it just they straight up. And this is like twenty. I think the first one was over twenty years ago, and they just seemed tired. And it's just like say De La De La. They weren't high or anything. It just seemed like it just you know some no, dudes man, from the, the crowd, the like prob- no energy. This is
2: the problem where they realize I spend twenty thousand dollars on a video, then I go on tour. The expectation is I'm going to deliver twenty thousand dollars of a video. On stage on tour. And that's just not, they need the twain needed to be met somehow. And some people did it better than others, clearly. You know, there was great production value to Public Enemy. Yeah. Always.
1: But even yeah. when I saw Public Enemy in 89 in Dallas, and they had a mm-hmm. great show and it was an arena and they packed it, but the tech was not quite there to deliver the volume like I had seen I think Slayer in that same arena Mm -hmm. and there was just no comparison to the literal volume of sound that was produced and like a hardcore or metal band could totally dominate a really violent crowd in the way even PE which was the absolute cream of hardcore hip hop Mm -hmm. at the time and the mo and you know that S1W's and everything and you know they had a dominating physical presence on stage but just because of the nature of trying to amp up turntables mm. and samples. You know, I think Ministry was the first group that really perfected yep. that. Yeah, that yeah. You know, and to the point where they were sample, you know, running their live vocals live vocals taped, you know, yeah. and got yeah. done. But yeah. that that brings us to the end of our run. And we'll we'll come back, wrap up this episode and get into the native tongues, get into Jungle Brothers, De La Soul. And that to me, like I'd loved run DMC and and Public Enemy before, but the native tongues for me was i mean i remember that first day of the soul came album came out when i was a freshman in college and it was just absolutely i mean everything from just seeing the copyright 1988 on the album was like oh wow it's 1988 know? and and, uh, and the fact these guys are 18 from the suburbs just like me you know <laughs> like it was it was special so i we'll tell you I d-
2: I, I, well, in the second one i know they don't even get into it but they were responsible for one of my favorite groups that never got any credibility at all, on the strength of two songs, I really like these guys, uh, and I can't even remember the name of the band. But they did "Paper Doll" and "Reality." Used to be a friend of mine. Uh, oh, the
3: far—no, uh, not the far side.
2: You yeah, know what I'm talking about, though, The two—the two guys. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Oh, um, uh, 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 PM Dawn.
2: PM Dawn. Yeah, the one that K.R.S. one threw you off the stage. You got
3: them up. Exactly, because they
2: were the ones <laughs> careless, want destroyed their making career. mountains like, out of
3: molehills you know. with this racism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, "Fuck yeah, you!" Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. he declared yeah. them whack at some show in Central Park or something, <laughs> yep. and and they never recovered.
2: Well, um, there there was that, and then there was a sex assault thing. Oh yeah, that's and, right. And then the thing is, yeah, so yeah, but those the, two that, those the, those two songs I thought I thought were, were worthy. <laughs> the rest never, of the record was garbage, versus, but.
1: Yeah, yeah. i I've fed with the guys. But anyway, we'll we'll continue our discussion of native tongues when we return.
0: Here's Boogie Down Productions doing "The Bridge Is Over."
2: That's it. The bridge is over. The bridge is over. The bridge is over. The bridge is over. With the slipper sense, down with the sound called BDP. If you want to join a crew, you must see me. You can't sell like Shannon another the one Molly.
0: And now a word from our sponsors. And here's De La Soul doing me, myself, and I.
2: Is it just my What I do ain't make People
1: say I sit and try, but when it comes to being La, it's just me, myself, and I welcome back. We're continuing our discussion about season two, episode three of Hip Hop Evolution. Do the knowledge. In this half of the show, we'll be covering the Native Tongues movement, including the Jungle Brothers, the ladies' first single, De La Soul, and Tribe Called Quest. So first up, I talk about the Jungle Brothers. The key quote, Mike G of the Jungle Brothers said, We weren't street. We didn't portray as super hip-hop dudes. We would just have funky flows and dope beats. One more quote before I let you add him. Buster Rhymes, Jungle Brothers is the first group that did the pro-black thing without being preachy and being fun at the same time. X-Clan, Chuck D, they were militant as hell. When Jungle Brothers did it, it was everything we wanted to be
2: like. Who wants that at first? I don't don't listen to Jungle
3: Brothers,
2: so... See, see, and that's that's the thing that was pretty significant about them. They were more, in my mind, more significant because of the stance they took and less because of the music. Like, I didn't find them to be musically that inviting, but it did create a space for for real blackness to exist. Like, uh, you know, I grew up in a I've lived in black neighborhoods almost my entire life, with the exception of one year in Cobble Hill and my sojourn in Palo Alto. And in general, they were always middle-class black neighborhoods. And you know, on my block, there were no gangsters. <laughs> there were no, you know, I had a white friend of mine drive me home. He was kind of freaked out, uh, you know, because we had to drive by Ebbets Field. A few blocks away, but in my neighborhood, very expensive houses. People's were doctors and lawyers. So Jungle Brothers actually gave, gave were created a situation where it was like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna buck the prevailing orthodoxy in a way that I think is healthy for the community. So I liked I I, I liked what they were talking about and I liked how they uh, created that space. Um, and uh, but musically, couldn't name a tune.
3: I just remember well, a girl at a house who. House music all night long. <laughs> Did they do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get we'll get we'll get to that. But first, that was the thing about Jungle Brothers because that second album came out on Warner Brothers, and I randomly picked it up on vinyl. I don't even know why. I already had the De La Soul album, and I don't think I'd heard of Jungle Brothers any other way. But I I picked it up at Sound Exchange in Austin, and really dug it. And when I went back, and that first album was one I heard about, but like, you could not find that thing. I mean, it was an indie release. You know, and I I gave up on looking for it ages ago. So when the show came up and I went back, that first album was pretty slamming. I think I I, I think it holds up. You know, spending the last week or two listening to all this native tongue stuff, I think they hold up quite well. Those first two albums, at least, compared to De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest, you know, perfectly respectably. And the and the I think their bigger problem was signing with Warner Brothers, which didn't know how to market rap. Warner Brothers. yeah, you know, like if they'd gone with Tommy Boy, although Tommy Boy already had Della Soul, so they, you know, um, weren't going to sign somebody so comparable. But yeah, I don't know. The Jungle Brothers, I, I'm glad they got featured in this, and I think I think they hold up pretty well. And and that is though, I do want to bring up what they what they left out. They did not mention that they commercially stiffed completely, like like you guys are saying, no commercial impact, and and they don't talk about Warner Brothers at all because Warner Brothers. Not only mismarketed their second album, then they sat on their third album for like I think 18 months. And so so Warner, out-
2: Warner Brothers were actively they they were not a friend of the artist at all. I mean yeah, I'm sure you remember what happened with Devo when they got a new no, president. Yeah. yeah, it's just like it, that you can't you, you couldn't run a country. Explain
1: yeah. what happened. Like they they the, you had a hit artist with over a decade of building success, culminating in multi platinum status. New president of the company came along, and
2: decides, I don't like these guys. We're going to bury them. No, he, he, he it, the, the quote directly was, Fuck Devo. Period, close quote, end the story. I mean, I interviewed Mark Mothersbaugh, and it was like, they've never, ever gotten an explanation. And, and, you know, he knows the guy's name at this point. I don't remember his name. Was it Yetnikov? Well, I don't think it was Walter. No, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I don't
1: yeah. Think, that doesn't sound like Walter. It was more of a it, drone type than a legendary. Yeah, 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 not
2: somebody that you heard of, but that's what, you know, guy wanted to leave his mark, and he did. Yeah, you know. and so what
1: they did to Jungle Brothers was, and yeah, that's the same thing that killed Run DMC when they said on um, Tougher Than Leather, because they had that movie coming out. You know, by the time it came out, hip hop had moved on, and, and the Jungle Brothers, the same thing, you know, I mean, uh, totally got passed up. But I'm glad you brought up hip house because I'll house you they worked with Todd Terry the, the famous New York house DJ and, and created a whole mini genre hip house and we'll get to De La Soul trashing that genre uh, as part of the De La Soul discussion anything else to say about the Jungle Brothers is that all you're going to throw in there? I just no, like the but...
3: buddy performance <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know do anyone's rocking the Jungle Brothers. I, I, I don't. I mean, at the time, you know, I knew who the Jungle what? Brothers were. I knew yep. Baby Bam and Mike G. I could name them. Um, I could, you know, Girl I House Shoe, like house music all that like like that that chorus. And other than their performance in Buddy, when they were in Buddy, I was like, oh, these guys are kind of, maybe I should check them out. And I didn't.
2: Well, yeah. but more, more, more than that, also, too, I, I don't think you can discount the fact that um... I don't think you can discount the fact that native tongues was brand stronger than jungle brothers. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> Right. Like it was like, it was such a, a delightful package in total. That like, I think Jungle Brothers got lost in the mix of everybody else who was a part of Native Tongues. So you could say that you were down with Native Tongues and not specifically identify what that meant, like Jungle Brothers. And and I just think the, the, other, the rest of the people in Native Tongues had a much more pleasing sound. Their records stuck with me in a, in a much more significant way, you know. But have you listened to Jungle Brothers? I Adam's have. Said, no, no, I, I have. But like I said, I couldn't identify uh, a single tune. And he says, buddy. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember that, but didn't know it was them. Whereas well, it was we them
1: guesting on the Deadly Soul track.
2: On yeah, that. yeah, right. But, you know, I mean, I I can remember three or four Deadly Soul tunes, and I can actually remember quite a few uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest tunes. And Tribe Called Quest also had an interesting segue into the, a mini version of what happened with, with the Wu where Q-Tip and Five start doing other people's projects, so they kind of in this concentric circle way start to widen their influence beyond just uh, native tongues. So I
3: try yeah. listening to listen to uh, not native. Excuse I try to listen to uh, Jungle Brothers years ago. Somebody had it. I just couldn't. I think it is the time it just passed because this is probably what maybe 15 years ago. So
1: I highly recommend giving it another try, though. I I really enjoy. Okay. It both those right. first two albums um I, I thought they held up totally totally held held their own with queen latifah and triple quest and de la soul on this but let's move on to the native times <laughs> as a whole
2: <laughs> I, I, I would have said let's move up yeah well oh
1: man I, that's kind of good kind of <laughs> but um but bob power the the engineer and producer I thought it had the key quote. He said, in hip-hop, part of the verbal tradition was always all about being tougher and more clever than everybody else. The native tongues were the first people that said, well, we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about consciousness. And I think it's another thing. Without being bougie, they were just comfortable in their own skin. They were middle class. Yeah. They weren't trying to get over on anybody. They weren't you know, were constantly trying to prove themselves. So there was a, you know, a lack of insecurity or whatever. They just didn't have that need to be macho. And I, and I, and, and we'll get more in a minute, but it really did, I think give young black folks a lot of cultural attitude to not be stereotypical black tough guy, you know, and not just into hardcore R and B or hardcore hip hop, but you know, read comic books and this whole geek culture that, that we've got now. I think a lot of it can well, be traced to the native well, tongue. Well, well, mm.
2: well. Look, look. It it wasn't like it wasn't like they came out with native tongues and everybody in Flatbush started reading comic books. We were all reading comic books from the sixties and the seventies. But I, honest to God, it, you know, we didn't feel ignored by mass media. We just knew that we weren't there in the mass media. So it was like we would go to see, you know, Cotton Comes to Harlem, Coffee, Foxy Brown. So, you know, Mac, but then we go back to our middle class neighborhoods and read Hulk and Spider Man and and do whatever else. And it's not like anybody ever made, nobody made fun of us for this. Zero. It wasn't like, but I understood we didn't live in the project, so maybe it was a different deal. But the Wu Tang, they grew up on comic books as well. In fact, yeah. at one point in some other do- in the Wu Tang documentary, they go—I think they take a visit to their comic book store where they used to go. You know, the guys, yeah. the little old, old guy is still there. So it—you um, know—I I think mean, it, it, it did it did create a public presence for which for people who were liable to to feel compelled to do otherwise, it was a nice it was a nice. Uh, I mean like I, I really enjoyed their presence in the marketplace,
3: right. I mean, th- what I was gonna say is I think that for hip hop at a certain when when you know it first hit the mainstream, the um rappers just seem larger than life, right? So when you talk about like the like Zulu Nation and the outfits they're wearing and even um uh, you look at uh, the Furious Five, like the outfits they were wearing and the showmanship. It totally was like a larger than life kind of dynamic. And then the interesting thing with the Native Tongues was the fact that they were, like you said, just that breadth and depth of you know black life, and also the fact that just they just seemed like regular dudes, you know. So it it yep. wasn't it wasn't like one of the big problems that I had as a fan of hip-hop was, you know, music traditionally has been very tribal, right? In the sense that, you know, the kid that would carve Ozzy in Woodshop into his arm and, you know, your friends are based on what music you listen to. And you might have people that are another kind of clique, but if you listen to the same kind of music, you know, you can vibe off of that. And I think the thing is, is that the native tongues, uh, especially the tribe... Uh, um, uh, component of it w- wasn't as fake. I mean, there were a lot of people that I knew that were following hip-hop and have their their rap name, like ski and stupid shit like that, or
2: they were the <laughs> Hangles... <laughs> Thrift e, yeah. <laughs> you
3: know, they they totally have this persona about themselves. It just seem fake as fuck. You know, like some of them move from like dressing like Prince to dressing like LL Cool J, and it just it just seemed really phony. You know, so the what was refreshing I thought about Tribe Called Quest specifically. Um, As opposed to De La Soul, because De La Soul at the time seemed like, oh, they're trying to be kind of like alternative and hippies and different, whereas Native Tongues are straight up like everybody knew people like Fife, like Q-Tip. Even when uh, Q-Tip was rapping about Fife, he said, you know, uh, here's Fife again. uh, rapping about last night's game, trying to remember someone's name—like the stuff that they were talking about—stuff that everyone can relate to, as opposed to trying to front and pose like there's something that you're not. It wasn't aspirational.
2: But also, also, do you, I mean, do you see what's ge- geographically speaking for everybody other than Nate? <laughs> we, we are moving from the concentrated boroughs out onto the island. Right. <laughs> Right? So tribe called Quest which was from Queens, you know, uh, um, uh, Buster from, and from, uh, uh, Dale
3: was from Long Island.
2: Long Island. Uh, so we started to have outcroppings in Westbury, Hempstead, Port Jeff, uh, and that's just, there's nothing ghetto about that. That's pretty nice out there, you know? And
3: that's so, what made it funny, I think, in terms of native tongues, is because I remember there's a certain point where large numbers of mainstream rappers, I'm not saying people that sold out, but they were from the suburbs. I mean, the number of rappers from Long Island that had street cred, you know, and were doing different kinds of things, I just thought was hilarious, you know, Mm -hmm. given the stereotype of, like, everyone's from the hood and rough and tough. I mean, the fact that you had, like, even a situation, like, even Nas, who was from Queens, like, talking about his father, like, you know, even individuals talking about their father, I mean, Ice Cube would talk about his father, too. But it was just, again, more, I think it was just more representational of a so-called community as opposed to um, playing, not necessarily playing the stereotypes, but just less theatrical and, and uh, you know, in the presentation.
1: And so what they left out of the native tongues discussion, I think they left out the black sheep totally, although they, a, a couple oh, of them got quoted yeah. in here, mm-hmm. but they, they didn't mention them and they were the only official native tongue members that didn't get um you know quoted there but they also didn't talk about the way the thing fell apart i mean really if you look at native tongues it's about half a dozen crossover songs Mm -hmm. is all it amounts to It's like you know de la soul guest starring on the jungle brothers and vice versa q-tip dropping in on the jungle brothers and de la soul like a couple years before the album came out you know and then queen Queen latifah and and money love uh, on ladies first but that's there was never like a native tongue album, which they probably could have done that could have been huge, yep, you know yep. And they never did a Native Tongues tour, nothing like that, and they don't go into at all how much De La Soul shit all over it, like De La Soul went out of their way later on to, you know, that Native shit is dead I think Pastanos said that you know, like well, in- but,
2: but you, know, you know the thing about that was, and I remember that period, and I remember being disappointed with him and it, it, it he who, Pastanos? Yeah, he at one point it was he I guess on the I mean, keep in mind, these were young guys, right? So they were like 18, 18, 19 on the road and stuff happened to them on the road, which I wasn't quite clear about. And and he said, you know, and some interview that I read, he said, you know, because we were down with this hippie shit. Don't don't think that we're punks.
3: Right, they had mm-hmm. fights. I remember that. I remember. Yeah. I remember articles saying like, well, people thought the De La was soft until they stepped to them," and all this kind of stuff. And even Q Tip, remember? Uh, I don't know if the rumor is true, but losing sight in his eye because mm-hmm. in uh song Jazz Fife it was Fife who got him beaten up, who said strictly <laughs> hardcore tracks, not a doojack swing. And apparently, people that were down with um down with Rex and Effect didn't like that and fucked up q-tip and that's why like after a certain point wearing the glasses i being all fucked up that that was the rumor
2: yeah yeah so yes and i mean i understand maybe he was under a certain amount of pressure um but i i i, I, I thought he attacked the wrong people in in that case you
1: know? yeah and, and we'll get to the whole de la soul's heel turn in a second but first we gotta do ladies first so then they do the ladies first section and uh Basically, didn't talk to Queen Latifah. So I don't think it, she would talk to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's I, too big I, I, for I, them. Exactly. I
2: think. I suspect she like really couldn't get a hold, hold of her. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so they got Moni Love, and 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 I assume that's also why it's not a Queen Latifah section, because mm. Ladies First is a Queen Latifah song with yeah. Moni Love guest starring and then everything else. They made it sound like it was, you know, one of these Stop the Violence type jams. It was a group thing that put together a temporary group identity, but so you know. Nonetheless, Ladies First was a huge hit, and Queen Latifah um, was big. And and going back and listen to that first album, that's a really solid album, that first one that she did. And Money Loves had some good, good tracks too, so pretty solid thing. But the thing that I was wondering about this, like what they left out of this, aside from the Queen Latifah stuff, was Queen Latifah's acting career. She yeah. basically – was the first rapper to really totally go Hollywood before Ice Cube, before Ice T, Queen Latifah? What Fox show was she? She was on some
2: Fox show, like. Well, she was also in Set It Off, right? Wasn't it that right, Hughes, yes, Brothers? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or,
1: yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. She was on Living Single. That was but that was on like seven years. That thing was huge, yeah. and uh, and I think she was in Chicago later on. So you know, Hollywood totally sold Latifah from from the rap game.
2: Yeah, except except for a sec. You do you remember that piece? Uh, this kind of is a, a nice bridge. The piece that Qtip had written about um, their accounting and about how many records they had sold, how much money that they made for the label and they did the trickle down and he just did all the adding and it came out to like, so last year on a platinum record, I got $32,000 and that's why I still live at home with my mom. I mean, so Queen Latifah was the first one to get paid, real money protected by a union screen actors guild union scale residuals and uh and she's and, Jamaican. And, yeah and, and <laughs> down, people people download you download your tv shows they're ripping copies of your tv show nope seeing your movies yeah nobody's ripping that the pipeline's not not big enough yet so she actually made serious money and and i think it, once everybody figured that out, there was no going back. You got Ice T, you got uh, you know LL Cool J, uh, Will Smith. I mean, it's All like that. the, that's the, very real money, not record label money. But
1: bringing up Will Smith, I think that that Queen Latifah's work on TV has not held up as well as say mm. Tribe Called Quest records or De La Soul. Like, I don't think people are going to be looking back on Living
2: Single and you know what now. they did. Who, for yeah, the, you, you know who's got a nicer house. Well, yeah, whatever, but I'm talking about the historical No, no, cultural no, whatever, living. bro If you gotta live in a carport, no, whatever you know. Yeah, no, that's totally important,
1: but the point I'm making is that there's a trade-off there which yeah, is yeah, the cultural yeah. resonance I don't know, I think, <laughs> I would say for living
3: I, I would kind of disagree with living single because I think recently we were talking about friends and people said, oh, there should have been a black friends, like, yeah, there was, living single, which you ripped off, yeah. right? So yeah, right. but I yeah. think that living single, when you talk about resonance though, I think living single happen to exist pre-internet uh you know in terms of being able to access i mean there's just a whole the thing that just trips me out is like even when we're talking and like you know in in groups and you try to look up a a gif from certain shows and certain kind of content it's just not there and i think that's why i think you're right i think to a certain degree living single will always have a certain kind of footnote when you're talking about uh in television with uh all black cast and it was like the black friends and everything. But I think the time that it came around and the lack of internet presence, and everything is going to affect it in a way that is not going to affect a tribe and a musical groups.
1: And so now we've got a lot to cover in the last nine minutes. Oh, here. So, shit. Yeah, yeah. So there's the De La Soul section and the, the key quotes I want to get in there is Dante Ross you got four guys, they read their parents' record collection, and they were not afraid to use just anything. And, and you know, you can see they listened to everything. I'm going to find this insignificant snippet on a jazz record, fuse it with this significant snippet from a rock record, and create something you've never heard. It was a beautiful thing. And then the second cat- point was Maceo was like, the more silly we were, the more we popped. Nobody in hip-hop was silly. Nobody else was being class clowns. Everybody else had the big bravado. And that's, you know, and that became a double-edged sword. Like they had the totally innovative sound and then they had the unique persona of being the class clowns, but both those things came back to vitamin ass and they don't talk about the that at all. They allude to the fact that lawyers came along and killed Sampling, but they don't mention it was De La Soul that got sued by the Turtles that, wow. and, you know, along with Bismarcky getting sued by Gilbert O'Sullivan that killed it. And for me, that's still – I'm still – bitter as hell about that. They ripped, you know, the whole point of copyright is what can we do to make more great art or more great science, not how can we maximize profiteering by assholes who didn't have anything to do with creating this stuff. You know, like if you read Jefferson and Hamilton everything about copyright, they were skeptical of even having copyright because they wanted the public domain to be as rich as possible. And so nobody, if you read those judges' decisions, the judges never regarded hip hop as, a worthy art form at all. They just saw it as you've got an asshole stealing from this artist and and no account was ever given to the fact that, you know, three feet high and rising is a fucking masterpiece. It still is, and you cannot get it. It's not on streaming services. You know, the whole oeuvre got erased and
2: no. oh, look at look at the state school guy with the
1: French. <laughs> 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 yes so let's uh, keep it I, clean and then he
3: yeah. throws the finger i know i know off. I off your team. But I mean, angst the, of the working class
1: but they 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 totally slipped over that and then they slipped over de la soul is dead and the way de la soul turned on their whole yep. image and that second album it didn't have the dense sample it still had sampling and, and they did some cool inventive stuff and hip-hop people have still been doing Cool, inventive stuff with sampling, but not the way Prince Paul and then we're doing it in
2: '89, '88, Yeah, but but however, but Prince Paul has con- can- continued to be sort of a significant yep. presence. Popular, Billionaire Boys top, Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah uh, he had that super cool concept album. And he was trying to get turned into a movie too. Yeah, I can't remember what it was called. And but, that dude looked um, like he
3: hasn't aged much at all. Like you see some of these folks, and him and Ali Shahid Muhammad. I was like, the fuck that dude.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, leave, I'll look good. So- I, last time I met Prince Paul, it was in Marfa, Texas, oh, wow. right? In like 2014, 2015. And it was a, a super expensive pleasure junket uh, funded by Scion. <laughs> and uh, he was there on stage with John Waters, George Clinton, and, and well, no, they had different days. So it was John Waters, George, uh, uh, George Clinton, and Prince Paul. I was like, "The fuck are you doing here, man?" He's like, "Gotta eat," (laughs) (laughs) and he showed up with his son too. He came with his son, so yeah. But we still got to
1: cover Tribe Called Quest, so so let's do it. Any final thoughts on De La Soul? The whole heel turn—you already kind of addressed that. They're a terrible live
3: act. We mentioned that last week. Terrible live act. I actually like Balloon Mind State more than De La Soul is dead, and more than Three Feet High and Rising, but whatever.
1: Oh 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 controversial yes. see i wouldn't even listen to de la soul is dead until i think literally this week Oh wow, you bitter
3: you mad
1: i i was i was that bitter i listened to to what was the name of the third one balloon mindset you just said balloon, balloon mindset yeah yeah uh, that one i didn't mind at the time but it was still you know de la soul is dead but that's the other thing about de la soul they were young and it and all they had to do was get a demo tape to Prince Paul like they never there was no years of touring mm, there was no battle rap and there no. was you know
2: so they were And cool. I, and and I think that's reflected in the fact that you've seen neither hide nor hair then really since then right How, they made a bunch more albums some and some digital and only like stuff. independent
3: free album that I signed up for mm. got never listened to a couple of years ago. yeah, th- th-
2: yeah, there yeah there that's were, what I
1: mean there was like a three part <laughs> concept series they were going to do and never mm. had it but
2: yeah
1: you know it all it all leads to Tribe Called Because Yes, class, the my group favorite album. out of all this that that achieved the most, like probably three masterpiece albums, multi-platinum success. Q-Tip, you know, becomes a total celebrity. And, and the and the thing I thought was the key quote was like both Q-Tip and Jarobi say, you know, five had in his mind at eight or nine, I'm gonna be a rapper yep. and drag Q-Tip along. But then Q-Tip is like saying. I had half the first album pretty much locked in when I was like 14 or 15, you know, and everybody talks about what a genius Q-tip is. And, and they, I think they do a good job talking like, you know, Q-tip, not just the rapper, but also the sonic architect. But they don't really get into the whole tension with Q-tip and Fife and the tragedy of Fife Dog at all.
3: What was the tension?
1: What do you mean it wasn't tension? You saw the documentary. I mean, the whole thing of, of – Vibe, basically being dragged along in Q-tip's wake, yeah. and also killing himself with soda pop. You know, and Q-tip trying to, you know, sort of trying to save his friend, but can't stop being a control freak asshole. And and you know, I don't know. You're the big, big uh, yeah, the but yeah,
2: but 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 music made by committee. You know, you can't you can't. I mean fascism works even though there's no good good fascist music and fascism you know, there's, know there's there's a, there's that's the Rolling Stone view but then there's the Beatles so it's
1: <laughs> view of a democracy of a band is a democracy you know there are rap groups that you know I mean Tribal Quest is a four piece that's really a solo act with a DJ and a guest rapper basically mm. Am I wrong
2: Yeah well first of all let's go back to five I mean I thought he had health issues massive health
1: issues he had diabetes uh, uh, you know chronically and then didn't take care of himself and you know and, and that led to him passing away but if there's a documentary on him, it's really powerful and and it really gets the brotherly dynamic and the and the you know the q-tip always ends up as the older brother the responsible brother you know and five is the wayward brother the prodigal son and and you know th- their last tour was difficult to put to, to get them together And then there was a lot of tension and ugliness that comes out in the documentary and they didn't touch on any of that stuff here.
2: Uh, Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Five Dogs' death hit me
3: harder than most uh, most, uh, musicians' deaths, you know, people that I follow. Just surprisingly, they found he was dead. I was like, what the fuck? Like, it fucked me up for just for some strange reason. You know, you just, you don't realize just how, you know, instrumental somebody i mean it was like he was my favorite rapper or even like top five or top 10 but you just have a guy a certain kind of presence and a certain vulnerability like uh that he always presented you know so um but him blowing up i thought it was weird because when shaquille o'neal did his thing with foo schnickens <laughs> yeah, fife yeah, right. dog was there too and so it just yeah, seemed like right. fife was always never could quite i remember what, eugene you talk about like him teaming with somebody would have been good um, but he just for some reason I mean Ali Shaheed Muhammad did that thing with Rafael Sadiq right and Fife right. just didn't seem I mean Droby just disappeared I guess become a chef somewhere there's some stuff about what happened to him but Fife for some reason I just I don't know
2: yeah I mean you know so the, the riot is, is oh you know, I mean you can't I remember what was one of the things they said about how Sammy Davis Jr. died. One of the reasons he died, yeah, he smoked, but he also one of his his preferred drink, and I forget not it wasn't like a Manhattan, but it was some drink with a lot of rum in it. And um, what this did, it a sugary syrupy drink, and it would coat his throat, and then he would smoke, so it would hold the nicotine to his oh. throat. And he said that's how that guy ended up with throat cancer. You know, it's like if his drink had been, you know, martinis. Uh, like Dean Martin or something, he he actually maybe, he would have maybe got cancer, but he wouldn't have gone, but you can't, I mean, you know, you really got to be living for the long run. And we did a piece in Ozzy about why people who are in music die so young, but, you know, with the template being established by the older blues guys, but you know, you got to take care of yourself. People used to make fun of me in the old days for going running and the, oh, that's a, a punk rocky freaking jock. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we're still doing shows. Yeah, I mean, Fife
1: is just a classic epidemic of the diabetes epidemic in this country, and, he, and he's somebody who couldn't put down the soda pop, you know, like, and, and that was a lot of their dynamic was Q-tip, you know, going vegan or whatever and lecturing him on on stop doing that shit, man, and and Fife didn't want to hear it, and, you know, here we are. One last point, though, and we've gone over, but I want to, I want to get this. Why did they fixate on the Low End Theory so much when Midnight Marauders was the massive big hit and and the first album is a lot of people's favorite? They,
3: I thought Low End Theory was always held as I mean I, I don't know if it's good to the source and all that kind of shit, just for some reason the notion was that Low End Theory was the pinnacle for Tribe, but I didn't think it was as good as People's Instinctive. I didn't think it was as good as Midnight Marauders. I think that Low End Theory had really good. I think that their singles. From Low End Theory were incredible, but as an entire album, I don't, I don't know if they just went with that. I mean,
2: I, I, also, also, uh, we would be remiss in not, if we don't bring up the fact that, as far as I was concerned, this was the first hip hop record you could have sex to. What Low End Theory? So- yeah, Quote Quest, <laughs> man. It's like, all I'm of them. Gonna, I mean, I, I guess you could have sex. You could have sex to like NWA, but it would be a very different type of sex, you know? So, yeah,
1: transactional. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, <brief.
2: laughs> and in a <the> car.
1: <laughs> yeah, correct, correct. So front like uh, you, Jessica Crew kind of sex. Yeah, and we didn't even, we
2: didn't even, we didn't even, we didn't even touch on uh, um, uh, Buster Rhymes group.
1: Mm, like, well, they were affiliates though, right? Yes. yes. They were never part of the, the new school. And, and I think that I you know, I, I don't know. This might be the episode that Buster Roms gets the most attention. And that's another one where it's 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 kinda unfair. Yep. Um, Charlie Brown know. is
3: very underrated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but so that's all the all the time we got, and, and we'll be back next time to talk about the final episode of season two, the New York State of Mind, which is going to cover the Wu Tang Clan, Nas, and the Notorious B.I.G. Banger. <laughs> Thanks, fellas.
0: Nate, Alexi, and Eugene will be back next week to wrap up the series with a discussion of season two, episode four of Hip Hop Evolution. New York State of Mind, which covers a new generation of New York hip hop, including Nas and the Wu-Tang clan. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at Let Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at ww.pantheimpodcasts.com. <laughs>